Thank you, Father, for this study. Thank you, Father, for these consistent nights when we can come into this room and we can be in your word. Thank you, Father, for this church and all you've done to help it reach the point where it can minister to people. And uh, thank you, Father, for stamina today, for my ability to come up here and teach. And thank you, Father, for those who've made it here tonight. I'm sure many have have had things come in their day that may have, might have uh, stopped them and prevented them, but Father, you have opened doors and made ways, and we thank you for that. And uh, Father, we know the chapter ahead of us is a bit tricky. We ask, Father, that you'd uh, just speak to our hearts as we study in a way that clarifies the details and helps us know what we're here to know. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are now at the climactic period of the seven-year tribulation. You guys have been waiting with me for this for now, what, seven, eight months or something. And the time of Jacob's troubles is coming to a head. You have God pouring out his wrath uh, in the form of these bold judgments. So we have the first that we've studied so far, the sixth that we've studied so far, have all come upon the earth. The first of those, the first five, were called the plagues. And they produced devastating destruction Uh, on the earth in such a way that life isn't even possible anymore. I mean, there's no fresh water on on the earth anymore. So it's only a matter of a very brief time before everyone on the earth knows they're going to perish one way or another. It's a very dramatic way to put the world on notice that the end is here. And then the final two judgments will kick off a complex series of events that are collectively known as the War of Armageddon. And in chapter 16, last week, we got an overview of those seven judgments and of the first stages of the war. We studied the first phase, uh, which was the sixth uh, judgment. And then we, today, we'll look at the seventh and the beginning of that. Then we'll have several more stages that come in conjunction with Christ's return. And in the way that maps out on the chapters that we've been studying or will study, it's a bit of a mixture. You have some things covered in multiple chapters, other things covered only in one chapter. So that complexity makes it a little tricky when you're trying to understand it as you read through it. Well, we're going to figure that out. Now, last week, as we looked at the first of those uh, Armageddon judgments, which is the sixth bowl judgment, it started phase one of the battle. And if you remember, phase one was you had the river Euphrates, which had previously been turned to blood by some of the earlier judgments of the bold judgments. Well, the sixth bold judgment dries it up and leaves it in a way that now the Antichrist's forces, which are headquartered in Babylon on the east side of that river, can now travel across that river. And because they travel across it, the Lord opens a way for them to reach Jerusalem. And then he motivates Satan to launch this attack by eliminating all sources of fresh water in the world. So in other words, the earlier judgment that made the world uninhabitable has put pressure on Satan to consider that his end is very near and he has to do something. God then opens the doorway for the river to dry up, and in doing that, he makes a way for Satan to act on his desire to do something. And knowing that Christ's return is imminent, knowing that he comes back at Jerusalem, he moves his forces to the northern end of Israel, to a place called the Jezreel Valley. And the Jezreel Valley is a broad plain in which you can mass a large number of troops, and that's what he does. He brings his troops into this area. That's stage one of the battle. Uh, It's a preparatory step. It's 
It's a sta- uh, basically a bivouac, moving forces into a position where they can then attack. And the um, stage is now set for the end of the war, uh, the end of the world through a, a, a coming war. Now, the Lord is going to direct the enemy's actions like pieces on a chessboard from here on out. Even in this one we just studied, he has moved Satan to somewhere he wants Satan to be because we're about to reach a point of a battle between good and evil. And the Lord is preparing the pieces on the chessboard, so to speak. And now that brings us to the final bold judgment and the uh, cascade of activity that will follow from it. And let's start with reading on that. This is a judgment focused on the fall of a great city. And this fall is probably the most important event in all of tribulation. In fact, it is so important that this one judgment requires two and a half chapters of Revelation. And it's the next stage of the War of Armageddon. Let's start reading in verse 17, where we left off last week in chapter 16. And he says, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake, such as there has not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plagues of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. All right, so the final bold judgment's poured out. You notice it says it's poured out into the air. It's almost as if the wrath of God coats the entire planet like a blanket. I kind of imagine something like this. And if you think about it, the the atmosphere of our earth is like a a big ocean of air around our earth, right? You guys don't want to see that over and over again, do you? Um, So... Just as the previous bowl judgments were poured into bodies of water, whether salt or fresh, so you have here a judgment that is effectively poured into an ocean of air. And it's like a dye being poured into a pool. It just mixes thoroughly so that every part of the pool is touched. So this is symbolic of God's wrath going everywhere on earth. Now, in literal terms, it's an earthquake. starts with an earthquake, but it's not like we've ever seen, he says. And it produces... A devastation that's probably on a par with Noah's flood, just without the water. So you have mountains gone, islands gone. Even the continents appear to be ripped apart. Now remember, mountains and islands, geographically speaking, are the same thing. Uh, they're peaks of, of mount, you know, peaks above water or peaks on the ground, same thing. So it seems as though he's saying that any high place on the earth is sinking into the crust of the earth. Anything built on a mountain, therefore, would be gone. Anything on an island is gone. The only cities that would remain at this point are those that are built on plains, that is, off of the mountains. But even those are leveled, it says. And as, it, as this judgment happens, you hear this statement, the final judgment has come, it is done. And the Greek word for done can also mean accomplished. So what it's saying is this. The wrath of God and his purposes in the tribulation have come to an end, have been met by the final outpouring of wrath through this last bowl. Uh, Revelation 15, verse 1, I'll skip past my little demonstration again. It said this, when we were in chapter 15, we read this, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. So it is done, reflects that. As promised, these judgments bring an end to God's wrath. 
You remember also when Jesus was on the cross, he said something very similar. Do you remember that? He said, therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So on the cross, Christ was taking the wrath of God upon himself for our sake. And once he had received God's wrath poured out for sin unto him, then he declared the wrath of God against the elect is finished. So the wrath of God is poured out one way or another. It's either poured out upon those who will bear God's wrath themselves, or it is poured out upon Jesus who took our place in receiving that wrath, which is why John says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So you could think of it this way in heaven. There's a quantum, a quantity of wrath that everyone deserves. And it's poured out in one of two places, on Jesus or on you. And that's, that's effectively the message of the gospel. Let him take it for you. Moving on, it says there's a hailstorm. To end all hailstorms, bringing 100-pound Hail falling on the earth. Now, when you think of hail, you think of ice. But in biblical terms, uh, hailstorms are not uh, ice. A hailstone in the Bible is a stone, a, a rock. So we're talking here about 100-pound rocks falling. Now, 100 pounds of a rock is probably not that big. I mean, you get 100 pounds pretty quickly when you have a stone. But moving from the sky to the ground, that thing's a missile, leaving nothing intact. That would mean complete devastation upon, upon the earth. Anything is go- everything is gone. I mean, this is basically the end of the world. So you would think at this point with an earthquake like that and with hailstones like that, you would think people on earth would realize this is from God, and they do, but at the same time, they just blaspheme him for it. You know, it's kind of like the guy who was the thief on the cross. He's about to die, and here he is blaspheming Jesus. You'd think, like the other thief told him, why don't you have any fear of God knowing where you are right now? You're, you're moments from seeing God. Why aren't you fearing him more? Same thing here. All right, so let's ask the fundamental question. What's the purpose in all these disasters? Well, verse 19, we're told, all the cities of the nations fall. But the Greek word for nations, ethnos in Greek, it's the word for Gentiles. It's a, it's a term for Gentile nations because from a Hebrew point of view, and the Hebrews wrote the Bible, from a Hebrew point of view, there's Israel, and there's the nations. So in biblical terms, the term nation means everyone but Israel. So when it says all the cities of the nations fell, it means all Gentile cities fell. And therefore, the purpose of the seventh bowl judgment is to eliminate all Gentile cities everywhere on earth. Nothing is left. Between an earthquake and 100-pound stones, there's nothing. Only Jerusalem exists at this point intact, excluded from these judgments. And since Jerusalem stands on a mountain, we must assume that one mountain has not been destroyed either, for if it had been, Jerusalem as well would have been. And we'll know later as we get further into this study that I'm right because Jerusalem will later show up in the text. So it's alone, it's it's still intact, it's still there. That's where Jesus is coming back. And because it's on a mountain and there are no other mountains, it is now the highest city on the earth the highest mountain on the earth, the only mountain on the earth. But there is still one other Gentile city remaining, at least to some degree. In verse 19, we're told that a great city was split into three parts. And now at first glance, you might think, well, gee, a great city, that must mean Jerusalem, right? Well, when we reference our rules for interpretation, that is, you have something that's not defined, you go look for its definition elsewhere, this is what you find. 
The great city, the term great city, appears in only eight verses in all the Bible, all of them in Revelation, and in every instance it refers to the same place, Babylon. If, for example, if we jump forward to chapter 18, you find one of those occurrences. In verse chapter 18 it says, Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. All right? One of the eight references. Now, if you are a particularly observant Bible student, you might be looking at this right now saying, I remember one earlier, Steve, that seemed to be talking about a different city, and I'm sure you were all thinking this, so I'll just take you right back there now. Revelation 11:8, when it was speaking about the two witnesses dying, it said, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And so at this point, we know verse 8 there is talking about Jerusalem because that's the place Jesus was crucified. That is an uh, unambiguous reference. There was no other choice for that city. And so in that context, we know that verse 8 is talking about Jerusalem. And yet there you see the great city mentioned in that verse. But if you'll notice more carefully, Jerusalem is actually described using four different terms in that verse. It is called the great city. It is called Sodom. It is called Egypt. And then also the place where Jesus was crucified. Now, the last of those four tell us definitively that this is Jerusalem, but the other three are clearly euphemistic. I mean, Jerusalem is not Sodom, but it was like Sodom in that day. It's not Egypt, but it was like Egypt in that day. And neither is it the great city, but it was like the great city in that day. So the reference to great city there, similar to the other ones, is simply euphemistic. They're calling it like Babylon, like Sodom, like Egypt. But it's the place where Jesus was crucified so that you don't misunderstand. So the term great city is always a reference to Babylon, whether literally or euphemistically. And now that city becomes the focus for the next two chapters in the book of Revelation. In verse 19, we're told that Babylon will receive the cup of wine of God's wrath. Now remember, we've said this before, bowls and cups are... You know, it's commonly used as symbols for the pouring out of wrath, the storing up of wrath to later be poured out upon some deserving object of God's anger, and that is now the fate of Babylon. But the concept of Babylon is exceedingly complex, and that's why it requires two chapters to deal with her in Revelation, uh, and that's why it's going to take us a while to get through it. Uh, because the destruction of Babylon is one of the two major themes of the Bible, the other being the redemption of Christ, the, redemp- the redeeming work of Christ. So the two major themes of the Bible are the, the role and destruction of Babylon and Jesus in his plan of redemption. And those two themes play against one another throughout all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. And Babylon, in that sense, serves as the antagonist to Jesus' protagonist in this story of the Bible. Now, just as Jesus' identity was slowly revealed, not fully known until the Gospels, Well, similarly, the identity of Babylon is slowly unveiled in Scripture. In fact, the word Babylon in Scripture carries multiple meanings. And I'm going to take you through five concepts that are associated with this term right now, all of which are being dealt with in chapters 17 and 18. All right, first, Babylon, going back to the very beginning, Babylon, as it was depicted here in this chapter, is the home of sin. Because it is the location of the Garden of Eden in present-day Iraq. In Genesis chapter 2, remembering this, 
We're told about this garden. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Uh, Dilium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. All right, so the Garden of Eden is located in the same place as present-day Babylon, and the Garden of Eden was Satan's location for his original attack against God. After he fell from heaven, Ezekiel 28 tells you about that, after he fell from Eden, the Garden of God, which was the Eden in heaven, on which the one on the earth is patterned from, once he fell from the Garden of God in Eden, he ended up on the earth, and God made an Eden for man, and Presumably, Satan became very jealous at the prospect of God creating something in his world, in creation, that could compete with the beauty and the wisdom of Satan. And so he attacks. Uh, The jealousy leaves him in a position to go attack man through woman, and you know the story. At the point that Satan gains dominion over the earth at that moment, he does so because Adam chose to obey him instead of God. And in so doing, he effectively worshipped Satan in place of God. Satan then received the dominion that Adam had been given by God. Satan gave his dominion to his new God. So Babylon is ground zero for the start of sin on earth, and it begins the battle between God and Satan in control over the earth. Not a real battle, not, not, not one in which there's any doubt in the outcome, but God allows it to continue for a period of history for purposes of his own. So Babylon, ever since that moment, has been Satan's home territory, his stronghold. Literally, geographically, Satan lives there. That's his home. I'm not saying he doesn't move around, but I'm saying that's where his base of operations is. That region continues to be heavily guarded by Satan and his dark forces. Demonic activities especially strong in those areas, and people who go there, I think particularly the men we send in battle over there, come back with demons, many of them. And that is, a, that is one of the serious consequences of being in that arena. It's a bad place, and when you hear the word Babylon, you need to think of Satan and the beginnings or the origins of sin. That's the first thing you know. Second thing, Babylon was a source of idolatry on earth. Genesis 11 recalls how men gathered in Babel, Babylon, under the leadership of a man called Nimrod. Nimrod was the antichrist of his day, which is to say he was the all-powerful world leader that had command over all of the tribes of the earth in that day. And as such, his story is actually a picture of the Antichrist. And he calls for a new kind of worship in his day, one that will lead mankind into a project, building a tower that they hope will reach to heaven. Now that goal may seem folly, but it's actually deadly serious because the Tower of Babel is the start of idolatry among mankind. Because what is idolatry after all? It is false religion, and like any false religion, it attempts to replace obedience to God with a man-made way to heaven. This just happens to be hyper-literal. They're trying to physically move to heaven. But in its, all, in its form generally and forever after, any kind of idolatry is a replacing of God with something you think gets you to heaven in place of God. And that's what they're doing. They try to reach heaven through mud bricks, and even though it was a foolish act, The heart behind that act was attempting to make their own way to God and believing it was possible. That building, the Tower of Babel, who do you think was behind the idea of it? It's in Satan's backyard, right? Satan used Nimrod to establish the thinking 
that men could define their own way to heaven. The idea of that started here. And the Lord responded by scattering them, by confusing language, and he did so to ensure that a rebellion like that couldn't get very far. But since that time, with languages being different, men have been put in a position where we fight each other more often than we're working together, and so that's been a a governor on the sin of mankind. We can't get too far because we can't get together too easily. Until recent times, uh, Western culture and the internet have increasingly reunited the world under a common language. The pressure and desire to learn English is worldwide now because so much of what people want access to through the internet is in English. And so the world is slowly or quickly now overcoming the barrier of language and it sets the stage for a new world rebellion against God with the world united under a common language again. The story of the Tower of Babel pictures the story of the Antichrist leading the world at the very end, just as the earlier story did. So when you hear the word Babylon, you need to think source of idolatry, origin of idolatry. Thirdly, Babylon is the Gentile kingdom that conquered the nation of Israel under Nebuchadnezzar and the city of Jerusalem. Now prior to Nebuchadnezzar, as we learned a few weeks back in in our Daniel part of this study, no Gentile nation had ever succeeded in overpowering the people of God. Never had Jerusalem ever been taken before Nebuchadnezzar. God permitted Babylon to do that, to conquer Israel as part of the plan that he had for them. And in that way, Babylon becomes the first of the nations to control Israel, and as such, it starts the age of the Gentiles. And that's what we studied in the book of Daniel. And remember, in that study, we also learned that Nebuchadnezzar, as the head of the statue, pictures who? The Antichrist again. You see a theme? Where Babylon is, at pres- is present in the story and central, you're seeing a picture of what God is going to deal with later when he finally destroys the Antichrist. So God permitted Babylon to conquer Israel, but he also said he would ultimately turn around and deal with Babylon for who it was. Uh, At one point in Jeremiah, and this is frequently mentioned in the Old Testament, but here's an example. The Lord says, but I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea for all their evil that they have done in Zion before your eyes, declares the Lord. And the times of the Gentiles ends in the same way. Remember, we're, in the, we're looking at the end of the age of the Gentiles, when the Antichrist is defeated. You have a single Gentile ruler like Nebuchadnezzar, controlling the entire world, persecuting Israel, controlling Jerusalem, controlling Babylon, just like Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end, God will deal with him, just like Nebuchadnezzar. This will be the Antichrist kingdom, and like the first Babylon, this final Babylon will be used by God to discipline Israel. Just as the beginning of it was God sending Nebuchadnezzar in to show Israel that they had been unfaithful, At the very end, he's using this same technique, one man ruling the world, coming after Israel so that he can bring them back to himself, which we see later in the study. So when you hear the word Babylon, you need to think God's instrument to discipline his people. And then fourth, Babylon is the seat of power for the Antichrist during the time of tribulation. Now, some interpreters have argued over whether the Babylon reference in these chapters refers to the actual city or is it just symbolic? When you get into one of those arguments, it's always, it's always funny to me that we have to choose. So often, you know, are, are the seven days of, uh, of creation literal or are they symbolic? Why are you choosing? They're both. It's literal, and because it's literal, it sets a precedent for what the number seven means. Uh, 144,000, is it literal or symbolic? It's both. They're literally 144,000, which tells you that God sovereignly chose them because you couldn't have found a perfect number happen by chance. But it's also 
representative of Israel by virtue of 12 times 12. The point is God always does both. You don't have to pick one. So in this case, Babylon is the literal city, yes, the place on earth that we know it to be today, and by virtue of the name, it invokes all of this history that we're studying. It tells us that God is setting up for a climactic battle between good and evil, Babylon being the poster child for evil, and he's going to destroy it. By the way, in the earlier part of chapter 16, we saw that the river Euphrates is central to getting the Antichrist forces to move in that sixth judgment. Well, that's another clear indication we're looking at the literal location. All right. So the seventh bold judgment is declaring destruction, essentially, against the great city Babylon. Now, the other cities have all been wiped out. Babylon, though, is being singled out for a slow death so that there can be purpose in it, so God can make clear that he's doing something here. He's going to destroy the Antichrist seat of power, as he's established it in Babylon, just before he destroys the Antichrist. And by the way, the fact that the Antichrist has his home in this location makes perfect sense. Where else would it be? There's virtually nothing else left on earth at this point. It's not going to be in Jerusalem, that's for sure. So he picks the place that Satan himself wants, because Satan is indwelling him. It's Babylon. So, When you hear the word Babylon, you need to think the seat of power in the last days. And then finally, Babylon is the home of the father of lies and the seat of power for the Antichrist during tribulation. And in that sense, it is the center for false religion. It stands for false religion. Babylon does not just represent one specific kind of false religion. All false religious systems that have ever been invented have been invented by Satan. They're all the same. And so when you talk to people in, the, in anywhere about religion, and they start telling you that, how do I know that Christianity is the right religion? There's, there's so many out there. How do I know you're the right one? This is what they're seeing in their mind's eye. They're seeing a chart like this of world religions, and the pie slices are so small because there's so many of them, you can't even distinguish them all, right? There's always a new one tomorrow. All right, well, who did that? Well, it, this is a perfect ploy by Satan because the way he has taken religion and distributed it across so many different systems, he has produced for his own purpose confusion and camouflage. The Lord tells us this is the truth. So only one religion is truly of God. Everything else is false. And at the point where you're distinguishing which one is, you know, which of the false ones you prefer, what difference does it make? So If you don't believe in the Bible, the Jesus of the Bible, the Christianity of the Bible, then you don't believe in what brings you to heaven. Everything else is some version of it. And what Satan has been so good at doing is making it appear as if this smorgasbord of religious choice is testimony to the fact that you can't find just one or that there there is just one. Many false religions are camouflaging the truth, confusing people, making it harder for someone to find what is true, and it perpetuates the myth that there are many roads to heaven. So when you hear the word Babylon, you need to think all false religions. So put all that together and you find that Babylon is both a literal place of importance in the end times, but also the spiritual seat of power for the enemy. It is a physical location where sin began, the spiritual home of Satan and rebellion. It's the starting point for idolatry. It's the source for all hate and opposition against God's people during the age of the Gentiles. Babylon represents all of Satan's false religions and the untold damage that it's done over the millennia. 
It's come to be representative of everything that Satan is and all that he does to undermine truth and oppose God. Just like you would think a place like Sodom has become a poster child for a certain kind of depravity, or Las Vegas conveys a certain sense of of sin or meaning for us today, the term Babylon in Scripture is loaded with these meanings. And as a poster child for Satan and evil then, Babylon is countered by another city. Jerusalem symbolizes all the opposites of those things in Scripture. It is the city of God and the place of redemption. So Jerusalem is God's dwelling place, the capital of his people, the place of Christ's sacrifice. It's going to be the seat of Christ's government, the center of the world and the kingdom to come. So as Babylon is to Satan, Jerusalem is to Jesus. And as a result of that dichotomy, when you look at Scripture broadly, you find this pattern a lot. Babylon and Jerusalem are always set opposed to one another in Scripture, although that relationship can be hard to see in some cases. Generally, it's expressed in terms of cardinal direction. So you have Babylon in the east and Jerusalem in the west. Notice they're almost exactly opposite each other in compass direction even. They're not quite at the same uh, longitude but they're, or latitude, but they're, they're similar. And as you go through Scripture, you find this interesting pattern over and over again. Babylon being east of Jerusalem, east becomes a representation of evil. And Jerusalem being west becomes a representation of moving away from evil and toward the Lord. So for example, Adam was created. And if you pay attention to the text, it says that after he was created, the Lord put him in a garden that was in the east, which means the Lord moved him from west to east, symbolizing or representing Adam moving toward sin to a place where he would discover sin. Later, Cain, after he kills his brother, is sent from the west to the east. Abraham was found in the east, in Ur, and sent west to the promised land, which in, uh, you know, obviously insinuates his move from paganism to faith. Jesus moved from the west side of the Jordan to the east to meet Satan in his temptations in the wilderness. The, promise, the Israelites moved from the east side of the Jordan to the west side of the Jordan when they came into the promised land. And this pattern happens over and over and over again. In fact, if you look carefully at East and West references throughout the whole of the scripture, they're not always necessarily following this pattern, but they almost always do. And you'll see it as a clear indication. It's a subtext. It's a little, little note to the reader. There's something evil going on or something good going on, versus, you know, depending on which direction you're talking about. Now, this pattern has happened time and time again. But in the climactic point of the age of the Gentiles, here we are at the second half of the tribulation, right at the very end of tribulation, what starts to happen is the figurative becomes the literal. The world has reached the point where there is nowhere else. Apart from the space in that map, the rest of the world doesn't exist. It's uninhabitable, it's destroyed. All that's left are two cities, the two that have always ever mattered, the two that represent all of what has happened in the the history of the world. They've just now become not just figurative examples, they've become the literal reality. And so God plays out the final battle between these two cities in the literal to reemphasize or to make clear the spiritual background for both. So we're going to actually watch the East come to the West to battle them in a gigantic end of the world uh, war, which has got a pre, uh, predetermined outcome because God's going to win it. We know that, but it's still interesting to watch it play out. All right. So these tribulation judgments being the final wrath of God, the end of his wrath, as we've been told, they must bring an end to Babylon, not just in the literal of the city, but everything I just listed on that prior slide has to be dealt with. If Think about it in these terms. 
At the end of the tribulation, Jesus comes back. He reigns over a world that is in perfect submission to him. He rules with a rod of iron. No one will challenge his rule. If that's to be true, then none of those things that Babylon represents can still have any life in the kingdom. They can't still be around. They can't still be making an impact. They can't still be influencing people because Jesus is going to be there and to not allow it. So in the preparation of his return, he sets up the circumstances on earth so that at his return, he can wipe out all of that in one fell swoop. And in order to do that, he has to move some pieces around on the board, get some things done in advance so that when he comes back, it's not a messy cleanup at that point. It's just a simple operation. And that's what you're watching happen now. The end of Babylon is the end of all the evil in the world as it's constituted in Satan and his works. And it comes to a head with Jesus' second coming. So you're seeing now at the very outset of chapter 17, the seventh bowl judgment's effect on Babylon, the great city, bringing it to its end. It comes in two forms, though. We've got to get rid of the physical city itself, the headquarters of the Antichrist, the place where he's currently holed up with his uh, army and his forces. But we also have to put an end to the spiritual Babylon. That is, we have to get rid of idolatry in all its forms, false religion, anything that competes with worship of Christ. Certainly, we have to get rid of their proponents, the false prophet, the Antichrist himself, Satan at the top of the chain. All of that's got to be put away before we get into the kingdom. So, we see it happen in two chapters. Chapter 17 is God judging spiritual Babylon, and then chapter 18 is God judging the physical city of Babylon. And between those two chapters, he puts an end to all false religion, and its control, and he ironically uses the father of lies, Satan himself, to accomplish that. And then when it comes time to destroy the city, he eliminates it as a seat of military and financial power in the last days and robs it of its wealth and its prestige. All right, so now we're going to see the first of those, the judgment against spiritual Babylon in chapter 17, and uh, we're going to read it in several large chunks, starting with just three verses, though. First, Verse one, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me and said, come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. Those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. This is one of the most uh, curious areas of the whole book of Revelation. People are always running to this area and just imagining all manner of things. Uh, We'll just do our homework and we'll be fine. So the angel tells John, Uh, We're going to give you more insight into the seventh bowl judgment. Now, all the bowl judgments have come now, and yet we're still in the middle of this narrative. Why? Well, because that last bowl judgment, uh, it's like one of those rhubarb, uh, 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 
no, Rube Goldberg, is that the name of the guy? The guy that makes those little instant contraptions that kind of run on their own for a while? It's like one of those. Somebody just kicked a little marble off the top of the ledge in the seventh bowl judgment, and now it's all just going to play out. And what John's getting is the detail of how that works. And he introduces, the angel introduces the scene in verses 1 and 2 by describing a certain woman who he calls a harlot who sits on many waters. And if you go down to verse 5, you notice that the harlot is a symbol for the great city Babylon. So that's given to us right there in the context. And the rule of this great city is over the kings of the earth. Now, women are commonly used in the Bible as a symbol of religious systems. You have uh, Israel as the wife of Jehovah. You have the church as the bride of Christ. So this, this is a common way of using a woman as to symbolize religious systems. So we've already said we're talking about spiritual Babylon here, not the city, but the, the, the concept of all that has come out of that region with what Satan has done and what he has promulgated around the earth. So you have a harlot picturing spiritual Babylon, and it's because a harlot is a perfect representation of false religion. I mean, think about it. A harlot or a prostitute, it's an illegitimate, counterfeit wife. And as such, it gives the illusion of marriage and the comforts of marriage without the substance or the reality of marriage. And in the same way, a harlot is a perfect picture of idolatry. It's a false religious relationship that is pretending to be like the real relationship you have through a covenant in in faith with Jesus. So more than just picturing idolatry, uh, John is told that this woman, the great city of Babylon, isn't just a picture of idolatry. She's the mother of all prostitutes in this regard, the mother of all false religion. So this goes back to what we said earlier. Babylon is where it all started. It's where the idea of worshiping other things got going. And as such, it is the source of all false religion, the beginning of all counterfeits, confirmation of what we observed earlier. And Satan, being the author of all lies, is the one who is producing all of these counterfeits. And his home, being Babylon, means Babylon becomes the personification of false religion because that's where his home is and he's the author of them. So, the harlot rides a beast. We'll get back to that. She is spiritual Babylon, false religion. If you just want to take everything we've learned about spiritual Babylon and give it a title that kind of helps you understand it better, the harlot is false religion and all that comes from it. And she sits on many waters. Now, the meaning of the many waters is explained in in verse 15. Here again, we get our answer right in the text. Uh, Water represents the multitude of the nations and the peoples of the world, all humanity, in other words. And you'll look down your page, you'll see it there. So we're building an image here. This woman, false religion, sits on water, suggesting she is over them. She is dominating them. So the world is under the deception of false religion, which finds its source in Babylon, the home of Satan. None of this should be a surprise to you if I told you that world religions are all coming from Satan and he's fooling the world by them. That's not news, right? Okay, well, it just said that. Then the angel says the world leaders fornicate with her and the peoples become drunk in her immorality. Now, the enemy is enticing people to engage in the worship of false gods for all kinds of fleshly reasons. But what this text is saying is throughout time, leaders, world leaders, have turned to false religion to build a base of power to enrich themselves, to control subjects, and in some cases, as true believers, thinking that they're appealing to some God who can bring them even greater power in their role as a leader. In that sense, they fornicate, they enjoy, if you will, 
the harlot. They use her for their own pleasure and become partners with her in that respect. And they become drunk. People become drunk by her immorality in the sense that what false religion says is okay will appeal to the flesh of those who follow it. And so they become, they become excited by it and addicted to it. And so false religion, you can see it in two ways. It is both a sedative and a stimulant. It's a stimulant of the lust in the form of power and desires of all kinds, greed and the like. People tell you they're doing it for pious and, and self, selfless reasons, but never is that true with false religion. It's always a selfish pursuit. By definition, it is, it is a worship of self because it is of a God you designed, you, you chose, you made for yourselves. So it is a stimulant in that regard, but it's also a sedative because it sedates the mind. It lulls a person into spiritual stupor. It inoculates them from the truth. It, it, it satisfies some part of them that knows that they should see you know, the true God, find the true God, but they stop looking. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4.3, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. So that's just the intro. Let's get to verse 3. John now is taken to a wilderness, it says, to see this harlot in a new form. And in the wilderness, John sees a woman riding a beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, some of this should sound really familiar to you, right? Remember back in 13 when we saw the beast? 12 was the dragon, 13 was the beast, okay? Remember in 13.1, the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having, there they are, ten horns, seven heads. On his horns were ten diadems, on his heads were blasphemous names. Now we said back then that the beast was the Antichrist, and in verse 8 here, you see confirmation that he's the Antichrist, because it says he is the one who was, is not, and is about to come up out of the abyss to his destruction. That's a reference to what? He was, he wasn't, then he was again. This is resurrection, right, which we saw happen at mid-trib. So this becomes a a classic way of describing the Antichrist from this point forward. He is the one who was, was not, and it comes up again. All right? So we know that this beast is the Antichrist, as was the case in chapter 13. And it says, when the world sees that he was and was not and was again, they will marvel over him. Here again, what we learned at mid-trib. The whole world is worshiping this guy. All right? So start, start building in your mind's eye here these pictures of the images and how they relate. You have a beast... And who was on the beast? The harlot, the woman. The woman represents false religion, as Satan has designed it. The beast now represents, at this point in the text, the person of the Antichrist in, the false, uh, in his role, leading the world at the end of tribulation. He's now being ridden by the harlot. She's in scarlet and purple and adorned richly. Um, so we know that false religion existed long before the Antichrist came around. In fact, look earlier, you notice earlier she was seen sitting on the waters of the world, right? So those waters of the world, the people of the world, the kings that were fornicating with her, that was an earlier time. Now you see her riding only the beast. So what you need to imagine in the way that John has seen this, she's moved from a position over the world to just being on one man, which is a way of explaining that there's been a change here as we come to the end of tribulation that now Babylon, who is the harlot, rides the beast because Satan is indwelling the Antichrist. And as such, 
spiritual Babylon, the mother of all idolatry, the one that, that Satan gave birth to, if you will, has now been united with one man, and that one man is also the world leader of the world, so there is no other leader to sit on. This has all come together in a point. One man, Satan, the mother of all harlots, everything that is evil in the world, concentrated in one moment, a woman on a beast. All right? Which means at the end of tribulation, all world religion is vested in one man, the Antichrist. No longer are there a cornucopia of false religions. That pie chart has gone to one color, virtually. That is to say, the world only knows the beast and all are worshiping him. So in that sense, the harlot and the beast ride on. And she's clothed in royal clothing, adorned with riches, and that's because Satan is requiring the world now to worship him and to make sacrifice to him and to adorn him with their sacrifices. Do you remember what Daniel told us when we were studying back in chapter 11 for a brief time when we were looking at the Antichrist? We learned this about the Antichrist. This king, the Antichrist, will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done." He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stone, and treasures. That's the woman adorned so nicely with all those treasures. That's picturing this thing going on in the world. All right? But she is also assured judgment because it says she holds a cup of abominations and immorality and that she is going to drink these things, that is, she will ultimately pay for them. So, verse 6, John hears that she is drunk on the blood of the saints, which is a picture of the martyrdom that's taking place not only now in the tribulation, but has always happened. And in that, in that sense, this scene is telling the story of religion from all times. That is, Satan's tool to enslave the world is false religion. He brings with it all manner of sin, and the world lavishes their desires onto it. And in the meantime, it persecutes the true religion because Satan knows who his true enemy is. So there's one religion, two if you want to count Judaism for the time being, that are always on the out, and the world is always celebrating something else. This is spiritual Babylon, the system of lies and corruption that Satan promulgates throughout history. And in the final days... His scheme is vested in a single man, and John is giving us now an explanation of how this coming together of Satan and his plans and the Antichrist and his plans and God above all and his plans to bring the age of the Gentiles to an end, how do they all come together? And the answer is explained here in connection with Daniel 7. All right, first, I want you to remember what we studied back in chapters 12 and 13. Let's just build a picture here because this is where the complexity happens. If, you're, if you want to sleep through this part, you might as well just leave now because you're not going to get anything else. All right, remember we, lo- we studied the beast and the dragon from 12 and 13. All right, the dragon had 10 horns and 10 heads with crowns. That represented Satan controlling the whole of the world. Remember at this time, the world has 10 kingdoms. As we come into the tribulation, there's only 10 kingdoms with 10 kings. And Satan has all of them. He's in charge of the world. He's got dominion of the world. All the kingdoms represented by the uh, horns. And then he's got all of the kings represented by the, the heads with the crowns on them. Everybody owes their allegiance to Satan. But then we went to the beast in chapter 13. And the beast had 10 horns, but only seven heads. And the crowns were on the horns. You see the difference up there, right? 
And we didn't cover it back then because I told you we'd get to it now. So what does that symbology for the beast mean? It's the same as what we're seeing here in 17. But here in 17, we get the explanation. Verse 9 is coming next. So, by the way, I also mentioned uh, in the beast case, the seventh one was dead and then resurrected. Remember, that was also given to us in chapter 13. So we see that again here too. So of the beast's heads, there's only seven, not ten. One of them has died and resurrected, which would mean it, it actually pictures the Antichrist himself personally. But now you end up with this strange recursiveness because you have the beast representing the Antichrist, but one of the heads represents the Antichrist also. And that's where it gets confusing. So now we have to sort it out. Verse nine. Here's the mind which has wisdom. Oh, Lord, yes, we need it right here. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other's not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth, and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose. They give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are the called and the chosen and faithful. All right. Trust me, we're going to get through this. When it says to those who have a mind with wisdom, what the Bible means when it says to those who have wisdom, it means this. It's not just saying, are you extra smart? It's saying, do you know history? And more importantly, do you know the rest of the Bible? To have wisdom means to know the Bible. That's what it means in this context. So we have to know something of things we've already learned, from Daniel particularly. Let's start with what we have on the page. First, we have the heads or mountains. Right, so this is the beast again, right? We just learned that those seven heads are mountains and that the mountains themselves are pictures or symbols of world rulers. That was all given to us right there in the text. Um, why did the text go from heads to mountains to rulers? Why didn't it just say rulers? Why have that intermediate symbol? Well, the reason is so that you know these seven are to be distinguished from the seven kings who rule with the Antichrist during the time of tribulation. Because we know there are seven of these guys left. There were ten. Remember, three were killed when the Antichrist was resurrected. We've heard that, so we know there's a seven out there associated with kings. And you get to this point, and you think seven heads must be the seven kings, but you'd be wrong. And in order to make sure you know that that's wrong, he takes the step of calling the mountains, because a mountain in the Bible stands for the highest authority, a king of highest authority. You wouldn't have the Antichrist and seven other guys all of equal authority. So these seven kings cannot be the seven kings under the Antichrist, because they are seven kings of high authority. Furthermore, we're told that the harlot will sit on these seven kings. Now remember, we learned earlier the woman is sitting on kings of the earth, but yet once the Antichrist comes to power, she only sits on the beast. So if these were the other seven kings of that day of tribulation, you can't have her sitting on all seven of them. She only sits on the one, on the one that's in charge. So that would rule this out as the seven kings of tribulation. Then in verse 10, we're also told that five of these seven kings have fallen by the time of John's day. So you have her sitting on one of them, the seventh one, which is the one that represents the Antichrist. Five of the earlier ones have already gone by the time John was writing this. That's what the angel means when he says five are gone. He's saying, John, as of our time here, first century, as we sit here, five are already gone. And he says one is in the first century, 
And one is yet to come, and that one that will come is the one that will be and not be and be again, which is the Antichrist. So these seven rulers don't all rule at the same time. They are sequential. One comes, then another one later, then another one later, finally ending with the Antichrist. So these are not the seven of tribulation. These are seven other guys. Later in verse 16, you're told that the ten horns represent the kings of tribulation. Look down your, your book there. So if the, in, chapter, in verse 16, so if the ten horns, the ones that are over here on the left with the crowns on them, they represent the ten kings that were on the earth at the time of the Antichrist's rise to power. So that's where the ten kings are, not seven, but ten. So these other seven guys are some totally different group of people. All right, so that's where we now have to understand what we're looking at here. So the seven heads on the beast are different kings, and as we said earlier, verse 10 also tells us that the beast himself is one of these seven, which means he's a successor to the earlier kings. And when he comes to power, we're told he will reign for only a little while. That's a reference to his three and a half year reign at the second half of tribulation. And so these kings rule one after another, not at the same time. Verse 11, that is really where it gets confusing. Not only is he one of the seven, as you see here with the woman on top of him, but he's also an eighth. How is that? Well, look in verse 11 where we're told that. What else are we told in verse 11? Not only are we told he's one of the eight, but we're also told that he was and is not, and we know that he comes back again. That's another reference to his resurrection, and in that sense, he's an eighth, because he was the seventh until he died, and uh, after he died and resurrected, it's effectively he's an eighth now. That's the sense of it, okay? So you have the seventh becoming an eighth, and the, she just moves over wherever he is, right? She's on him through the t- tribulation. She, he is the only king that matters. All right, so now we're still not sure why all this was given to us. We still need to go a little further. To understand the meaning of the heads, we need to go back to chapter 13 and take a note of one important detail. Verse, 20, uh, verse two. Notice how this beast, same beast, we've already established that the beast of 13 and the beast of 17, same beast, they got the same number of horns, same number of heads, everything's the same. The difference is in 13, we see his arrival, And in 17, we find out what's going on behind the scenes spiritually. He's actually being ridden by Babylon, spiritual Babylon. But look at what we learned about him in chapter 13, verse 2. He was like a leopard. His feet were like those of a bear. His mouth was like that of a lion. The dragon had given him his power. Remember all those references to animals? What did that tell us back then? That this beast we're seeing here in chapter 13 now and in chapter 17 incorporate aspects of all four of the beasts that Daniel gave us in the age of the Gentiles. All right, so now stay with me for a second. You have the age of the Gentiles, which is a period of history, starting with Nebuchadnezzar, ending with the Antichrist. It goes through four major stages, and the four stages were represented in Daniel 7 by these beasts, these different animals. The last of the four was the beast with the ten horns. So when I look at the beast of chapter 13 and of chapter 17, I find elements of all four of those animals. You got bear, leopard, lion, and the horns, which represent the fourth beast. So what is that saying? Well, we know that during the 2,600 plus years that this age has been going on, there have been a lot more than seven rulers, right? We know that. So somewhere in that span of history, you have a beast that's made up of bits and parts from all of them. 
So that's a way of saying this beast represents this entire age of which you have major players, seven major players, the last of which is the beast, the man who personifies it all, the Antichrist. But he didn't start it, he ends it. It started with Nebuchadnezzar, and it moves through stages, and these heads represent men who were in leadership during that time who carry us from the beginning to the end, who represent God's work in this age to accomplish his purpose, and this beast has the harlot on, on it the whole way. So Satan is working through this period of history as God has appointed him to, to bring about the end of the world in stages, now leading into the last stage of tribulation. Everyone wants to know who the seven are, and it's not hard to figure them out because you just have to follow the rules we established when we studied this back in Daniel. Um, first of all, of the seven, five have fallen. Five had to be dead by the first century. And then one had to be alive in John's day, around A.D. 95. That narrows it down. And then we know who the last one is. The last one is the Antichrist. All right? So knowing that there's a connection between Daniel and this chapter, we understand it's always been between Babylon and Jerusalem. It's always been the issue. Babylon being destroyed at the end, but Babylon destroying Jerusalem at the beginning. The beginning of the age of the Gentiles was Babylon destroying Jerusalem and the end of the age of the Gentiles is going to be Jerusalem destroying Babylon, figuratively speaking, right? Spiritually speaking. So the age of the Gentiles is ultimately a battle between good and evil in which God controls the whole of it. He initiates it with evil winning for a while and good winning in the end, but for the good purpose of disciplining his people and opening an opportunity for the church to receive the gospel and everything else we talked about in those earlier periods of the study. All right, so if you remember, we said what of the, when we went to decide which four kingdoms were the four represented by those beasts, we said they had to follow a simple rule or series of rules. They had to control Babylon. They had to destroy Jerusalem or control Jerusalem, and they had to be Gentile. And they had to replace the earlier kingdom. And that led us to the four that we know now are the four of the age. Apply those same rules to the leaders. That is, look for supreme rulers, mountains, supreme kings, who ruled over Jerusalem and Babylon and had died by the time John wrote the book of Revelation. History records five. Nebuchadnezzar's dynasty over Babylon began it. Uh, and by the way, you don't count the guys between changes. I don't count all of them in the period of Babylon. It, it, I'm still looking at the divisions of the age of the Gentiles. So when I leave one of those divisions, I'm looking for when there's a change or is there a change in the middle? I'll show you what I mean as we go. So Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon controlled it for a time until Cyrus's Persia controlled it for a time until Alexander's uh, Greek Empire controlled them for a time. But remember, Alexander's Greek Empire did not remain monolithic like the first two did. The first two stayed monolithic. Yes, there was a succession of rulers, but it was effectively just a dynasty, a handing off from one family member to the next. But once you got to the end of Alexander's life, there was no dynasty. He had no kids. They broke it into four parts at that point. Which one, if any of them, had both Jerusalem and Babylon? Guess what? None of them did. That is, of the four places, the four parts of the Greek Empire that were divided up after Alexander's death, Babylon was in one and Jerusalem was in another. So they were not controlled at all times by the same king. But there were two times during the period of the Greek Empire in which 
internal battles took place, and one king was able to take both territories for a period of time. It happened first with Ptolemy, the, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the Seleucid Empire retaining control of Babylon, and then the Ptolemaic had Jerusalem, and then Ptolemy III, who was of the Ptolemaic kingdom, attacked the Seleucid Empire in 246 BC, I guess, and that's when he had both. And then later in 170 BC, Antiochus of the Seleucid Empire attacked the Ptolemaic Empire. So we count those two guys, even though they're all part of what we consider the leopard, because they were not the original kingdom. This is a new supreme leader attacking and taking control, and he set a new precedent. Between those heads, there was no one. That's the point. There's only five guys that move through time and do what's required to meet the terms of the age of the Gentiles. There was nobody else who made that conquest happen. And then you reach the time of John, and who was currently in power in John's day, who had become the first of the Romans to take both. The first Roman to take Jerusalem in conquest was Titus, to conquer and destroy the city as had been done like Nebuchadnezzar. And after Titus, no one has ever done both. No one has ever done both. No king has ever ruled over both. Now, the Ottomans came in for a time and they controlled the land, but they didn't take, there was no Jerusalem at the time, or they didn't take both Jerusalem and Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon at the same time. And so the Roman Empire ends with the seventh, which is the one we've talked about. All right, so the seven kings are kings who lead Satan's kingdom, this spiritual Babylon, during the time of the age of the Gentiles. The harlot rides them through the history of the age of the Gentiles, eventually landing on the final one, the Antichrist. The kings were all her benefactors. The harlot was an enabler. Satan ruled the world by deception and lies and greed and lust. But in tribulation, all those relationships get a lot clearer and closer. And then you have the ten horns. As we said already, they represent the ten kings who lead the world at the start of tribulation. And, in, and we come back to them just to make the point that it says they have one purpose. And this confirms what we learned in Dad and Daniel earlier. Why did God let the world get down to just 10 kings at the very end before the Antichrist showed up? It's for this reason, that they would give their authority to the beast. It's a lot easier for 10 guys to be ruled by one man than 250 nations. So the Lord consolidates nations into just 10 for this purpose, that when the time comes, the Antichrist can rise above all of them, ultimately so that they can all be brought to their end. All right, with the last bit of tonight, let's just look at the end of 17. He said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. We said that earlier. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. For God has put in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose, by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman who you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. All right, this is what you just learned. This is the heart of the judgment against spiritual Babylon. During the age of the Gentiles, God puts uh, Satan's counterfeit religious system to work for his own purposes in disciplining Israel. That's what we just studied in the age of the Gentiles. God lets Satan do what he does, but he controls it to the purpose of disciplining Israel. Now that he's reached the point where he doesn't want him anymore, he sends the seventh bowl judgment, and it brings an end to his corrupt, counterfeit religious system. Because in verses 16 and 17, we're told that the Antichrist and the world rulers all come to hate the harlot. That's interesting, isn't it? Why would they suddenly hate what they've always previously loved? Well, think about what's happened at mid-trib. 
at mid-trib, Satan indwells Antichrist. He directs all the world to worship him now. Now, ironically, as Satan has indwelled a man and made himself the object of their worship, he's now competing with his own false religions, which he previously populated the world with, which not, that's not going to make him happy. So he then goes about systematically ending worship of anything except himself in this new form. And so all religious institutions, temples, churches, mosques, any place of religious worship is destroyed. That's what it means here when it says they're burned with fire and they eat the flesh of the harlot. The flesh of the harlot, symbolically, is the structure of all of that religion. It's all being torn down. So all religious institutions are stripped of their wealth. She is made desolate and naked. The angel says, verse 17, the kings are working in this regard to fulfill God's purpose even though they think it's their own idea. I love this verse for a lot of reasons. It just goes to show that we think that if God is in control of us, we must be robots. You're not giving God enough credit. He can control you and you have no idea. You think it's your own idea. And he's doing it here with evil people. He can do it with believers. He's always doing it for good. The point is he can do it. And in this case, he has turned these people to thinking, this would be good for us. We should destroy all these religions. We don't want them anymore. And Satan's in the middle of that saying, yes, get rid of all these other religions. What are they doing? They're cleaning up their own mess for God. Because at Christ's return, he won't have to destroy mosques and false houses of worship the world over. They're all gone because Satan did it for him. And in verse 14, then we're told Jesus will take care of Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet by himself. So after they're the last three standing, that's all, Satan, that's all Christ needed done. He comes back and takes care of them. So the seventh judgment greatly simplifies the problem of cleansing the world of false religion prior to Christ's second coming. God makes Satan do it for him so that at his second coming, he only need destroy one man and the power behind him. All right, that's how the end of the spiritual Babylon happens. Let's just look at one last slide. So at the end of the spiritual Babylon's destruction, the end of the seventh judgment, all of this structure that had been in place and had been ruling the world comes to this. All that's left is one man ruling the world as the leader and the spiritual leader, and now it's a mano a mano, one against one, not even a fair fight, but still, the Lord comes back with one man now to fight. Now that's all in preparation for the rest of the military battles. We'll do the city next time we meet in a few weeks, all right? All right, so that's a lot to digest. That's why it's recorded. Go back and listen and work through it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it, Father, what you wrote and prepared for us can't be digested in one hour. Even simple things can't, Father. How much can complex things be done in that way, Father? But we, we're thankful that we have them and we will... Uh, reflect on them for a, for a time to come for sure, Father. We thank you for that. Help us understand it. Help us to appreciate the wisdom in it. And Father, help us uh, to remain always thankful for the fact that we have been rescued out of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.